to Objection, a spotlight on justice. Today, myself, Elizabeth, Aya, Jordan will be your hosts. We are joined by a very special guest, Patrick Gettys, a deputy public defender at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. He joins us today to talk about his experience as a public defender and his transition from finance into public defense. But before we get started, I just wanted to ask everyone, how was your day? Elizabeth, you can start with me. <laughs> I guess my day has been pretty good, except I had a few tests to take, but it's been okay overall. How about you, Jordan? My day's been pretty good. I've just been at home, so it's been pretty nice just being able to stay in bed all day. My day was pretty chill. Uh, I didn't do so well on a test, but staying positive. Messiah, how'd you do today? Or what did you do today? Well, it, was, it was just very good. You know, I did some work and stuff and tried to be very productive. Nice, nice. Okay, Aya, I'm going to leave it to you to kick off. Yeah, so from talking to you prior to this episode, we learned that you used to work in finance. And we just wanted to know how you got into finance and why you ultimately trans transitioned into law. Sure, thanks. Um, so yeah, thank you guys again for having me here. The, yeah, when I was in undergrad, I didn't know what I wanted to do at all after I graduated. And I lucked out in that my aunt was in finance and she worked at Merrill Lynch um, Venture Services actually with Paloma's uncle, which we found out when she started the program. And so she worked at Merrill Lynch and they were part of this really big high net worth group. And they said, why don't you just come join and see if you like it. And it was at a time when I was um, studying for the LSAT because I had always considered going to law school and I was also working, coaching high school rowing. So I coached freshman rowing at Sarah. So every day <clears throat> I'd get up to San Francisco from the peninsula for, from like six in the morning till three after the market closed. And then I would rush back to Redwood City and then I'd get to drive a boat around for a few hours and coach rowing. Um, and so I, I did finance out of undergrad just because they had the need and I had a connection in the door and it turned out to be a good experience, I think. How did you get into coaching rowing? So I rode in high school. I was invited to be a part of the Canada, Mexico, USA team. Um, and then I was recruited to some schools. Uh, I wasn't good enough in the time frame. Like it's supposed to be pretty good as a junior and I didn't really blossom if you will, until I was a senior. And so, you know, a few places were like Annapolis, waitlisted and a few IVs, which um, probably sounds soul crushing as some of you are waiting for some letters back. I, uh, I know you're waiting on some. Um, so yeah, and then I, I loved rowing and I had a really good relationship with the president of the high school who they were looking for a freshman coach and things just kind of lined up. Interesting. I know it's rowing season right now. My school's 
like the knee deep in the rowing season, so it's really cool to hear. It's always rowing season, it doesn't stop. <laughs> really? Unless you're on the east coast and the lakes freeze over, yeah. The west coast rows all year round. Interesting. West coast, best coast. Well, shout out. I've got a question as well. How was the initial transition from finance to law? Um, so it's interesting because you go from being in school to working and then going back to school. So finance was long hours after the rowing coaching season. I only coached the spring semester, but, you know, it was like, working 6am to 7pm. So you were working pretty long hours. And then when you go back to school, it's just heavy, nonstop reading, nonstop going back and forth, which you kind of pick up working, uh, but you don't have the same experience. Some of you, you know, you have this schedule, you're in high school, you go class, 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 and then you go to your extracurricular, if that's sports or, uh, you know, whatever other clubs you're in, and then you're doing your homework until you go to sleep. And sometimes it's eight hours, sometimes it's three or four hours. I know a lot of you had tests, so maybe you're up really late. Um, in, you know, your work life, it's pretty long in the beginning because you're grinding away, you're putting a lot of time in the beginning, trying to learn and just grow and develop. And then going back to school, it's just kind of a different um, you have to get back into that mindset, which you think would be easy having done it for as long as you did, you know, having gone to undergrad myself and then going back. But I think a lot of people that went straight from school just had a different experience than those that worked for a period of time. And mine was only about a year, but um, it's a pretty easy transition. Um, I have a question. So how did you know you wanted to like leave finance and like transition into law? So I always wanted to be an attorney and I always wanted to be in a courtroom. I knew I wanted everyone to be watching me at all times. Um, and I wasn't a part of theater, but I just wanted to be, you know, the focus and the person through which stories were told because I've always enjoyed storytelling. And so from a young age, I didn't have lawyers in my family and first generation college educated. It was, I want people to depend on me to tell a story. Um, and so when I went and was working, I always had in the back of my mind, I'm gonna leave and go to law school. The partners of the group each pulled me aside and said, no, 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 we're, you're not gonna to go to law school. You're gonna work here. We heard you on the phones. We've heard your clients. Like, you're really good. We wanna keep you, but I always wanted to go. And so uh, they called the law school I got into and told them I was deferring for a year and that I would not be going to law school. <laughs> And so um, that made it a little easier that I could just jump from that group. But, uh, you know, it was always in my mind that I was going to go to law school. Public defense wasn't the goal at that time. Um, and that happened throughout law school. How did you know you wanted to get into public defense? So I grew up in the peninsula. I went to Sarah High School. I uh, grew up in the suburbs and I didn't have you know, I had some exposure to the criminal justice system. Our mom was a educator at Juvenile Hall. So my brother and I had the earliest curfew of any of our uh, other classmates at all times. because She knew where the bad areas were, what kids were up to past 
11 at night, which was my curfew. Um, so the exposure really came in law school. I knew I wanted to be in court and you grew up in, in the suburbs thinking, oh, you know, one side's good and one side's bad. You watch TV, Law and Order, the news, the district attorney is always glamorized, right? They're the ones that are doing the good work. They're making society safe. They're protecting the community. That's their ethical obligation. And it's not until I had a few interviews that uh, I realized I was more interested in defense. And then it wasn't even until I started working here, the moment I realized this is what I, I really want to do and I can do it was my second year of law school, they call it your 2L summer. I was working for this attorney who's in the homicide rotation, his name is Steve Olmo. And he said, I want you to read this transcript and then review this, the evidence that correlates to the transcript. It was a homicide case. And so I read it and the set of facts were that this you know, man shot another man in the head. And so I was reading through the you know, more specifics of the case and, and what happened at this hearing. And I thought, wow, I'm gonna see in photos of evidence, it's gonna be a picture of a dead body. And so, you know, you've watched movies and you've seen, you know, images online, whatever, but it's like, okay, this is this is gonna be it. Can I do this? And I remember taking a deep breath, it was kind of dramatic to do that, but you think, can I do this? You know, when you're thinking from a young age, oh, I wanna be a doctor, I can deal with blood, or I wanna be a nurse, that's fine. Or, you know, we would joke with our mom, she, wanted to be a nurse, but every time one of us would choke this kid, she would run out of the room. She couldn't handle it. And so that was that moment for me of, can I do this? I know what's coming next. Can I do it? And I turned the page in this binder and I remember having no reaction. That was at first because I had already read it. It wasn't that I was a cold callous person. I think that it was, okay, this is what it is and I can do this. Um, and at the time, it was the academic challenge that, okay, how do we get this person out of jail? How do we help this person? What are they charged with? What are the elements? And what's our theory of the case? Because loaded up front is the media that this person was charged and arrested. Here's their photograph. And the prosecutor in the trial is going to tell you the whole story. And it's not until the very last minute that you hear from the defense. So that, from an academic perspective, was so interesting. And then when you start having a client relationship, meeting the clients, appearing on their behalf and speaking for them, that's when you really make a connection and realize, okay, this is, you can't not do this after you've done it. That's interesting. What really stood out to me and related to me was that my grandmother, she was an educator and did not follow as well. So that was like, that was sweet for me because she loves, the, she was an educator as well, and she loves to talk about teaching, especially in because that was later in her teaching career. Mm -hmm. So she likes to talk to my sister and I about what she learned and what her experiences were while there. The stories were just so sad because we we couldn't hear a lot of it, but I remember, you know, our mom would uh, bring candy. She would buy bags of candy. We're like, oh, for those fresh to go and bring these in for the kids. You know, when they do well, we like to you know, give them whatever little bits that we can. And some of the guards would pull it. And, I later find out, oh my God, my mom's bringing contraband into a jail. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, their stories were so sad. They came from poor home life, from bad neighborhoods, and um, not a lot of parental oversight or things like that. And you just start to really paint a picture quickly of why this person found themselves where they're at. And coincidentally, uh, 
my brother is a prosecutor, and he knew he wanted to be a district attorney for a long time growing up. He was taking a tour of the San Mateo County Jail, and then all of a sudden, they were walking through some portion and saw my mom, and then uh, she was waving, and everyone was asking, why is that woman waving to you? And they go, it's, uh, it's my mother. <laughs> so it's nice that some of those things can come from full circle as a family, uh, even though we're not all in law or practicing. Wait, how do you like separate your work life from your personal life since like you do make a connection with your parents? It can be really difficult. So um, I was just talking to a colleague about this. Like you go uh, out and you're on a date or you're out grabbing food with a friend, right? talking to them and you're asking them just like we did in the beginning of the session how was your day and you or you engage in more conversation you're just catching up with someone in the back of your mind you're constantly thinking about the cases especially because a lot of them are time sensitive different things like motions trial are time sensitive so it's it can be really hard to shut that off because you're thinking so i'll be looking at you listening to what you're saying and then have to stop you and be like wait a second i have to write this note on my phone or I have to jot this down because it's just came up. So it's hard to shut it off. Um, and it's also hard to shut off the skill set because I think what can make you, or what I think makes me good at this job can make me really bad in other things. So like, I've done this exercise, I think, with a few of you. I don't know that I've done it with Jordan um, just because I don't think I've had the pleasure of meeting him yet. But what I tell young attorneys, what I tell my law clerks, what I tell people that are interested in doing this, and I think this is a valuable tool for anything is close your eyes. What did you see? What is in the room? Tell me what is going on. Can you pick up on little things that are happening all at once? What are you observing? Because that will make you a better litigator, I think. If you can create a room from your perception, can you make something real to someone that wasn't there? And that's our job in trial, to say, this is what actually happened, to paint the picture of this disparate lifestyle or reality that is so foreign to so many people. Um, but that can also be really tough because if you're training yourself to pick up on every nuanced behavior, right? The way that you um, sit, the way that someone, uh, the little ticks and tricks that they have, it can, you know, be kind of annoying to people when you're talking about it. <laughs> when did you learn this? No, well, uh, where did you land after law school? Uh, Planet Earth originally. Um, so after law school, I came back here. I had an interview for the volunteer attorney program. Sorry, I'll get to your question. Um, so I, inter or I had an interview for the volunteer attorney program. It was, it didn't go really well. And I, been a law clerk here, 2L, 3L, and I there wasn't a job offer. It's an offer just to volunteer, to, to work for free. And I remember sitting in this little interview room and I was sweating bullets. They had me do a cross-examination. Um, it was tough and it didn't go well. And they called me that Friday and they said, hey, you didn't get it. I said, ah, all right. And then an hour later, they called me back. Hey, you know, the person we uh, gave it to doesn't want to do it. You still want to do it? Yes. <laughs> and so um, I luckily kind of snuck in 
and then I did three trials in the four months and um, yeah, never really looked back. So you were a volunteer attorney? Yeah, so San Francisco has a program called the Volunteer Attorney Program. A lot of times it's uh, attorneys from big law firms that don't have trial experience. They want to get litigation experience. So they will work here for a four month period, sometimes longer, depending on how they negotiate it. They get paid by the firm and then um, they get the experience and go back. And sometimes we pull them back because they find the work so fun and so rewarding. Um, a lot of other attorneys come here on fellowships and do that from their school, get experience and either go elsewhere or try to get hired and stay in the office. So uh, for me, the formula at that time was you worked here as a volunteer attorney. You went to another county, you got experience for about anywhere from six months to two years, and then you came back and you started ground zero in the mystery unit. That seemed to be the formula for most people. If you ask probably, you know, 80% of the felony rotation right now, that's, that was probably their experience. So have you spent your entire career at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office or have you worked in other places? So I was here for the four month volunteer time. I went to Sacramento Public Defender's Office, I was there for 10 months and then uh, left and then came here September 25th of 2017. So almost my whole, but for this blip. What made you want to come back after you left? So I needed a job. I was in Sacramento for 10 months. Most counties, you're uh, on a probation period that's six months to a year. And I did 14 trials in 10 months several other motions and other things, the uh, misdemeanor manager came up to me and said, don't try that San Francisco and then expletive up here. Uh, and so I think I, I kind of burned things down and that's kind of the San Francisco mentality. It's file all the motions for your client, be present, be in court, be there, make sure that, you know, some injustice is happening, you're objecting. And for so many people, you know something's wrong, but you don't make the right objection because you don't know what it is. But just object. Geez, it doesn't pass the test. I don't know what it is, but objection. Uh, oh, right. Sixth Amendment. Oh, oh right. It's equal protection, due process. And, you know, that wasn't comfortable to that environment. And so they told me, your services are no longer needed. And then I came back here and uh, I was lucky to get back here. So how would you say San Francisco, the style of the San Francisco Public Defender's Office better serves their clients than other counties? That's a really good question. So um, San Francisco is a vertical representation office, which means we start from the, the moment you meet your client, that is your client. So you're in court and the first appearance is their arraignment meeting. The charges are being read to them. And so you can imagine what that feels like as someone that's been arrested. Let's imagine you have no exposure to the criminal justice system. And now you're, you can't afford an attorney and you're seeing this person for the first time. This is the only person that's now gonna help you. That's when the relationship really starts. In a lot of other counties, what they do is they have horizontal systems where they break it up, where you meet them at arraignment, you give them a little bit of information, you gather theirs, try to get them out of jail, and then someone else takes their case later on down the line. And sometimes it's multiple attorneys in different phases. 
some offices think that's good because different people are touching it. There's more eyes on a case and you can each add your own input, but it makes it really difficult for a client. Who do I call? Who's my attorney? I don't know. I have like five business cards. Uh, I don't remember who it was from the last time. Is it going to be the same person? Who do I give this information to? And in San Francisco with the vertical model, it's this is my attorney and this is my client. I know this person from the moment they came into custody or the first day they were in court, I was there next to them. Um, and I've walked them through that whole process. So that's why I think it's better. And we do a lot of case conferencing. We do a lot of trial huddles and things so that I, it's not just like my eyes are the only ones that are on this case file. You, know, you guys have worked on some of my cases and helped out. Law clerks help them work out. Uh, and then we also have these case conferences. So multiple people get their input and you're constantly workshopping. Hey, what do you guys think of this? Um, you know, what do I need an expert in this? So I think that's what makes San Francisco an enviable place to work in a good model for public defense. Does doing these case huddles build more community within the office because everyone gets to know each other better and understand everything? Absolutely. And so, um, it's, it's been really difficult since COVID because, you know, we're quasi-remote, but we're required to be in because we're a, you know, kind of human services agency. We have a physical client that we need to be there for and gather information from. Uh, but for, from a public health perspective, it wasn't safe to have everyone in the office all the time. So there were restrictions uh, that we were following, which made it tough. But we did some Zoom case conferencing. And, um, you work as a misdemeanor attorney and you kind of grow up. So you start with lesser exposure and then you move into felonies and then there's other rotations and like collaborative courts, homicide, etc. So you have an idea of who people are. Uh, maybe you were a law clerk officer, you interned, and then all of a sudden you're hearing them speak for the first time and seeing them advocate in court. And so that the case conference is really healthy because then you get the perspective of these people and you say, oh, okay, so-and-so has done a lot of this type of trial. So-and-so has run the unconsciousness defense. This person's run mental health defenses. This person's done a necessity defense. This person does a lot of domestic violence cases and self-defense. I need to go back to them because I really like what they have to say. And San Francisco really promotes that mentality too of going and watching your colleagues, watch them in uh, motions and limiting, watch them in their closing, watch them cross experts. And uh, being afforded those opportunities to help you build and uh, take from other people. I remember writing notes, watching closings of several colleagues. So I really like the way they said that. Um, and then a lot of things you learn just don't work for you. You get to try it. So oh, I, I couldn't you know, climb on the table like that attorney did and stand up. Uh, Jeff Adachi would sit in the witness stand and move all around the court. It was this theater. And the whole court and people would just watch and the eyes would just move as he was moving, right? And so you pick certain things up. I, when I was in Sacramento, I sat in the witness stand. And I said, look, a witness sat in the stand and swore an oath. And the judge, who we called him a triple threat, he was a cigar smoking guy in chambers. He's an FBI agent, a cop. He was in the armed forces, was a DA. So like every kind of law enforcement. He goes, counsel, get out of the witness stand. He didn't testify in this trial. And so I learned, okay, that didn't work for me there, but I've done it in other, other trials. You, you learn from other people in case conferences and watching. That really does build a community and makes you value your colleagues more because you see their skill sets and then they help improve yours in their life.
That's really interesting, especially because it seems to build more immediate relationships within the office, which I think overall betters how the office functions and fits everyone knows each other so well. Yeah, and then, you know, you grow so fond of each other and have these great bonds, like a um, good colleague of mine and a really good friend, Slyman Malati, is leaving to go to alternate public defender's office in Los Angeles because he's from there and he wants to serve his community. So that's always kind of been the goal, the dream. Um, you know, sad, but I remember he was one of the foundations that really helped me develop and grow and I learned a lot from him, so I'm thankful. But, and it's coincidental that this is going away. Do you have a question, Jordan? Yes, I do. I'm going to ask a bit of a fun one. Um, Pre-trial, you are getting ready for a court case. What is your go-to, like, song or, like, genre of music that you immediately go to before a court case? Oh, hip-hop. Okay. What artist? Uh, let me see. What would yours be? Pre-trial, I'm... I'm thinking something happy because I, I don't know what I'm going to go into. Like, I don't like some elder abuse case. So I'm listening to like hip hop hooray, like something very like upbeat. Like, yeah, because you don't want to go into something and it's like an arson case. Then you're going to be very sad. So I'll give you. OK, so ignore the expletives, but Fair Trade by Drake is up there right now. Oh, OK. All right. Let's see. Some older rap, and then you know, I hate to say it, but a lot of like, uh, like electronic now. Mm. Just because it's kind of melodious and you don't have any words, so it's like listening to classical. You don't have to like, yeah, you're not gonna be remembering something like the words. It's not gonna get in the way of your vibe. Um, I have a fun question too. Um, what is like a memorable case that you've had? Um, one of the most memorable was the case of Henrietta Dixon. She was an older woman charged with domestic violence and vandalism. There's four counts. The allegations were that she um, went up to her former boyfriend and punched him, like knocked him to the ground in front of the federal building. Uh, in the Tenderloin, and then later went to his car and keyed it. And the hood of the car was keyed with the word rapist. And, um, you know, the evidence was that no one saw her do it. He said she told him, which does anyone think of an objection there? Hearsay. That she did it. Uh, because he had some inappropriate relations with her granddaughter. Um, and so it was memorable because she had admitted to certain things. The quote was, yeah, I roughed him up a little bit. She told officers, yeah, I roughed him up a little bit. Um, and so he took the stand, the complaining witness was her ex-boyfriend, and at the time, my then girlfriend was watching, the misdemeanor manager was watching, and several people cycled in and out of the courtroom. And one of the, I just got into a rhythm with this witness. It was probably like my, I don't know, 28, somewhere between my 28th and 33rd trial. And I just felt a rhythm that 
this witness I've seen before. This is someone that's going to give me whatever I ask them if I lead them the right way. Um, and a lot of times you start off, you know, you have your line of cross questioning. You know, isn't it true that? And you usually start with what's called the chapter method, something general, right? Something that we can all agree to. And then you kind of get more specific. And so with him, he, when he would kind of go astray, I would have immediately in front of me, well, do you remember saying this? And if he said no, okay, would it refresh your recollection? I'd play it. And so he immediately trusted anything I'd say that, okay, yeah, you're right. I, did, I probably did say that. And so I got him to just admit to saying a lot of heinous things. So the jury was already like, whoa, this guy, we're really not liking him as a witness and his credibility is at issue because he's doing all these wonky things. And then he, um, I said, you know, is it, you know, when, when she touched you and, and brought you to the ground, you weren't harmed in any way, right? No. And you, you didn't feel offended by any of the conduct, right? And that's kind of a weird question, right? You didn't feel offended. He goes, no. I was sticking to the language of the instruction. So for domestic violence, it has to be harmful or offensive conduct. And I would never have known to examine that line of questioning had I not been in the case conference with a colleague, Sylvia Wynn, who did a lot of domestic violence cases in misdemeanors, and said, look, stick to the elements, harmful or offensive conduct, touching, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. And so the judge, there's this motion you make after the close of the prosecution's case called the 1118 or 1118.1, saying there isn't sufficient evidence for this to go to the jury. And so I make the argument, I go, judge, you heard the evidence. He wasn't harmed or offended by the touching, which is kind of a weird ticky-tack distinction. And the judge goes, I am appalled that the prosecution would bring this case when a witness would testify to that. So yes, I'm granting the motion to those two counts. And so that became something that you never really envisioned. Okay, great, I got rid of the domestic violence charges. So now what's left of these vandalism charges? Well, shoot, so my supervisor called the DA supervisor and said, look, what are we even doing here? Like, my, you know, Patrick just got these charges dismissed. Why are you proceeding anymore? And he goes, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to dismiss. We're just going to let it go to the jury, even though they had really little evidence. And then so, you know, I got to argue a lot in closing about the kind of person that he was. But it was also a weird case because there's this instruction you get called charges no longer for jury consideration. And so that fear that I had was, gee, I did this really great thing. I got her exposure down because we got rid of two counts. But shoot, they're going to think that she like pled to something after hearing the evidence or, you know, something that is going to be against us because they're no longer here. They're, the instruction says don't speculate, but what's the first thing you do? You know, people that are afraid of heights don't look down. That's the first thing you do. Um, so it, it really concerned me and scared me. And the jury verdict was within like 30 minutes to an hour. And so, you know, you imagine you feel your heart racing and you're touching your neck, you're trying to avoid it beads of sweat. We, the jury, in the above entitled defense, find the defendant name. And that's when, like, your heart is exploding. And no matter how many trials you do or how many court appearances you have, it's that moment of this is the culmination of all the work I've done, let alone what's going to happen to this person next to me. This is just the reaction in my body, me as the person who's done so much work for this other person. You can imagine what they're going through at that time. Not guilty. Yeah. You know? And then there's all, you know, a lot of times you, you hear the opposite. So uh, 
that was just a really rewarding one because it was so fun and there was a lot of other legal issues and she had admitted to doing several things but the the right and just verdict came about after the jury heard it so for most people they might say okay we'll just enter a plea to the vandalism look she admitted to doing it or we'll enter a plea to a battery she admitted to roughing them up like there it is uh, but you know she was encouraged and we were ultimately successful All right, I had a question. It's kind of a little like change of topic, but what keeps you motivated to this work despite it being like the David uh, v. Goliath fight? Wait, can you repeat that? You kind of broke up a little bit. What keeps you motivated to this work despite it being like a David v. Goliath fight? A David v. Goliath. Well, um, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Have you ever done something that, well, let me ask you, do you play any sports or have yeah. any extracurriculars? What sport? Um, track and field. Um, what time are practices? Uh, after school to like 5.30. Okay. Some days you're done with school. Do you ever not want to go to track practice? Almost every day. Right? Almost every day. And um, Did you ever have morning practices? Uh, yeah, sometimes. And do you dread having to wake up when that alarm clock goes off? Yep. Do you ever, you know, tell your parents or whoever, hey, look, I'm just going to call that sick. I'm not going to make it to track. Most of the time I do want to, but I tend to not. But there's that feeling of, gosh, I, I want to sleep for a little bit more time. I don't want to do this. How do yeah. you feel after you go to practice? Uh, rewarding. Right? Yeah. Um, that's what... A lot of times that's what the work can be like. It can be draining. You know, there are those nights that you are fearing that test where you're done studying and you want to go to sleep and so you're just sitting restless in your bed. You have no more energy to study anymore, but you also are so wound that you can't go to sleep. There are those times in this line of work where you you know what the, the battle is. You know what the what you're up against. You're sometimes up against, they call it two prosecutors because the judges a lot of times side with the prosecutor. Um, and I think what's rewarding in itself is the challenge, but most importantly, the human element that you're that, you know, guardian angel, you're that representation, whatever you want to call it, or if you want to envision it, you're that person that's the wall between the state and this individual. And I think that's what's so powerful is that I'm there for this other human being. And it doesn't matter if the whole world is against this person, I'm gonna give them all I have. And some days, look, I wanna hit the alarm, I wanna call in sick, uh, but once you go through it, win, lose, or draw, you realize that it's rewarding in hindsight. Well, yeah, so I got a question. What was one piece of advice as you transitioned through life that helped you continually be successful? Um, so I think it's two things. The first is just work hard, work as hard as you can, everything that you do, right? Even if you're not enjoying what you're doing, work as hard as you can, I think, because you're going to learn 
from that. And you're going to be a better person for that. And the other is somewhat of a parable. Um, it's a story of a farmer. And raise your hand on the Zoom if, as I'm telling the story or here, if you realize the story. So uh, there's this farmer that has a horse. And the horse runs away. And so the neighbors come that night to the farmer and they say, wow, how terrible, how unfortunate that your horse ran away. And the farmer says, well, maybe. The next day, the horse comes back with seven wild horses. And the neighbors come back that night and they say, wow, farmer, how fortunate, how lucky you are that you had lost this horse and you now have seven horses. And he says, well, maybe. The next day, the farmer who has a son, him and his son are training the horses. And as the son is riding one of these wild horses, he gets bucked off the horse and breaks his leg. And so the neighbors come back again that night. Hey, wow, that's how terrible, how unfortunate that your son broke his leg. And the farmer says, well, hey, the next day, a conscription service for the army comes to take all eligible, able-bodied men to fight in the army. And they have to say, no, we can't take the son because his leg's broken. We're falling off the horse. So again, the neighbors come around, they say, gee, farmer, you're so lucky that your son's leg is broken. He's not taken. He doesn't have to fight and risk his life. And he says, maybe. And the point of the story is, look, we don't have the perspective of what's going to happen in the future. And sometimes things happen that are good. Sometimes things happen that are bad. And you can't really tell what the future will bring, but you realize that a lot is going on. You have to trust that process. And what I've learned is that being reflective and looking back, sometimes the things that I thought were really good didn't turn out to be really good for me. And sometimes the things that were really bad turned out to be really good for me. You know, I'd equate it to like sports losses or, you know, you, you know, Aya said she felt like she didn't do so well on a test. Well, hopefully that motivates you to then study your tail off so that when you take the next test, boom, you got an A, right? And you get the extra credit and whatever. The bad things can motivate you so much more than the good can. So you learn from the losses. And unfortunately, in this line of work, there are a lot of losses. A lot, you know, it seems sometimes a lot more than the win. So if you put in the work, grind, 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 uh, you're going to be successful. And even though you may have the up days or the down days, you had a lot of tests yourself, put in the work and I think you're going to, when you reflect on it, you're going to be a better person. I think that's great advice. And on that note, we are going to end the episode here. And I want to just give a great shout out to Patrick for joining us today. And thank you. Thank you guys so much. And if you guys ever want to, hit me up, Elizabeth and Paloma already did, and they came and observed a court day. I would encourage all of you to do it. Um, I hope it was rewarding for you. And I really want to thank you guys for having me and taking the time. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. And we will see you next time on Objection of Spotlight.